In this episode, I'm once again joined by Tibetologist, author, and Tantric Buddhist Lama, Glenn Mullen. We discuss a fascinating range of topics, including theosophists Madame Blavatsky, Colonel Olcott, Alice Bailey, and controversial American spiritual teacher Adi Da. We explore the line between mystical experience and psychotic delusion, and how mystics from various traditions have related to hearing voices and seeing visions. Glenn comments on the role of teachers and lineage in keeping mystics on track, reveals the five different ways to achieve clairvoyance, and discusses why the West has produced so many self-initiated adepts. So without further ado, Glenn Mullen. Glenn Mullen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. So on this occasion, I wanted to ask you about some other areas of interest and study that you've engaged in. And before you became so involved in the practice side of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, you've said that you read widely in your teens across different traditions, including Sufism, Hinduism, Taoism, etc. I also noted that you have been a regular speaker at the Theosophical Society. I think you first spoke there in 86 and have spoken there a great deal over the following decades, I think al almost once or twice a year for at least 20 years. Mm -hmm. True. You've said of uh, Helena Blavatsky, one of the founders of the Theosophical Society, Blavatsky was a breakthrough thinker, a great being pushing things in the golden era direction. And uh, you also led a tour of 40 or so theosophists through Tibet, uh, of the theme of uh, Blavatsky's Tibet. Mm -hmm. and, and you know a great deal about Blavatsky and her time, and I'm curious how it was you first encountered her and what it was about her and the Theosophists that captured your interest? I think that in general we can say our Western world owes a lot of its open-mindedness to Russian influences. And uh, Russia, not just by accident, because Russia sort of stood uh, halfway between Europe and Asia, with East Russia being uh, Lama, Tibetan Lama Buddhism, Lama Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism, then that influence was there for a long time. I remember reading a book of a British traveler and talking about in the early British days, for a British person to intermarry with a local woman was very much discouraged that uh, it was very rare for a, a white Brit to marry, say, an Indian or uh, an Af African or a native from North American Indian or something like that, whereas it was very common for the Russians to do so. Yeah, intermarriage with um, Asian peoples was quite common. In fact, when I, I go to teach in Russia once or twice, uh, every, I, every couple of years, I should say, I go to teach in uh, Russia. And the Russians have a saying that if you don't have a little bit of Mongol blood, you're not really a Russian. <laughs> and so kind of the open-mindedness, the spiritual open-mindedness kind of flowed out of Russia in the mid 1800s and swept the world quite strongly and went on through the you know, 1860s, 70s, 80s, and so on. And the spearhead of that from the 
Russian side was a woman known as Madame Blavatsky. And she was a very charismatic woman, obviously. And wherever she went, she was very well received. And she did a lot of what's known as spontaneous writing, where she would just kind of go into a semi-trance, if you will, and just write pages and pages and pages. <laughs> now, she claimed to be channeling uh, a kind of a deity, if you will, or a spiritual being. And uh, whether whether that's the case or she was just a very talented, spontaneous writer is up to the individual to decide. And... Uh, then she also wrote several books on Tibetan Buddhism. So one was Tulku in Tibet. And she really introduced Tibetan Buddhism to the West in a sympathetic way uh, for the first time. Before that, any writing in Tibet was, you know, the devil dancers of Tibet and sort of exotic, fanciful sort of writing with almost no basis in reality. And the Theosophical Society that emerged from her in connection with her work with other um, foreigners she met or other people she met along, Colonel Olcott is very famous. And he was very strongly influenced by Buddhism. And actually in Sri Lanka, he's sometimes even credited with saving Sri Lankan Buddhism because the British colonization program was pushing the Church of England so strongly that it was really undermining all of the traditional culture. And he really started a whole movement to save uh, basically Sri Lankan Buddhism. And up in India, they traveled in India for many years and so on. So the key point of the Theosophical Society, which today sounds kind of normal and reasonable, but at the time was quite radical, <laughs> is that every tradition of the world uh, connects to the same deep reality or basic reality, a kind of a deeper truth that goes beyond culture, goes beyond context, if you will, a kind of a perennial philosophy or a universalism. And it was this that became the hallmark of the founding fathers and mothers <laughs> of the Theosophical Society. And uh, my mother was born in London. She was a British war bride. And the Theosophical Society became quite big in Europe, with lodges in Paris and London and the States and so on. So she was a sort of an avid reader. I don't know if she was a dues-paying member, but she was certainly an enthusiast. Uh, you could say a member by heart, <laughs> a heart member. At least I never asked her about her, if she had ever paid the annual fee to be a paying member. And so the first sort of sympathetic connection with Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhism that people had really, that we had in the West really came through Blavatsky and with Buddhism through Colonel Alcott and all of that in the late 1800s. And uh, from that, I think, those sort of positive first seeds, our Western appreciation for Tibet as more of a, 
as, as a spiritual land as opposed to merely an exotic land with headhunters or something and rings through their nose and spears or something like that. Looking at the Tibetan Buddhist culture from the point of view of the depth of the philosophy and the depth of the thinking. Now, Blavatsky was not a scholar or an academic, but she was an avid reader with a really good memory. So, uh, it's interesting, too, that at the time in Russia, uh, there was a school of Buddhist philosophy in the Oriental Institute, uh, because all of East Russia was Tibetan Buddhist, and therefore they had a kind of a Sanskrit um, department and learning Tibetan department. And some of the first really good translations of difficult themes in Tibetan Buddhism coming from India were were from the Russian translators and the Russian academics. So my own exposure to theosophy came in that way as a young man. And because my mom was part of that movement, or part of that trend of thinking, I guess would be a better way to put it. She had a wonderful collection of the spiritual masterpieces of different cultures of the world. So Sufism and the Rubiyat of Omar Khayyam and Upanishad and the Tao Te King and all of these kind of universal classics, you could say, or classics of every great world culture. So my own connection really came in that way through my, through my mother. And uh, then after I came back from my training in Tibet in the mid-1980s, because I Went there in 72 to study in Darmstadt and remained until 84. And when I got back in Toronto, uh, in Canada, the Toronto had a quite a large uh, Theosophical Society lodge. And so they asked me to give occasional talks and to lead uh, meditation sessions, things like that. So uh, as, in terms of speaking at the Theosophical Society, it really started with Toronto. And the next year, 86, I was invited to do something at the Theosophical Society in uh, Chicago, the, the suburb Wheaton, but it's really Chicago. And that's the, the, Ameri the US headquarters of the Theosophical Society. So I don't know how many lodges they have around the country, but a few dozen. Now, there's a few in California, Florida, and North Carolina, <laughs> like that. <coughs> and at that time, there was a very elderly German lady who was running the president of the American Lodge. And she really liked what I, the kind of energy I brought, if you will, and kind of making that link uh, from the early theosophical connection with Tibet. And so then, uh, she said, she asked me, well, Glenn, I think it would be really good if you would try to come and teach at least once a year, if it's at all possible. And so from that time on, I tried to do once a year. And if I was in the States and there was uh, some things going on, that it would even occasionally be twice a year. They recorded most of those, and maybe not the early ones, but from about 1990 or so. They made audio recordings. In the last 10, 15 years, they've made video recordings of everything. 
Now, a lot of my things are, I do normally when I visit there, I do the Thursday night talk, which is a kind of a general open one to everyone. And then a weekend retreat. So the weekend retreats are always uh, residential retreats. People come and, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60 people come and uh, participate in the actual building. They have a wonderful teaching room and practice room upstairs. And other people tune in by webinar and so forth. I don't know, uh, I don't know how many people uh, thereafter go and look at those videos because they are available to members and whatnot for, uh, I would say, a small fee, but in that I've never done it myself and I don't get a commission on a, a royalty on that. I don't know what that is. <laughs> but anyway, the, I've taught there pretty well every year in that way for about uh, 30 years or so. Yeah, a lot of those are on YouTube, actually. They've started uploading them on, on YouTube. Yeah, they put up a, a lot of the Thursday night ones and on the weekend ones, because a lot of the weekend ones are around tantric practices. They will, if there's a, an introductory bit, which is kind of like more general, they'll upload them. Yeah, so there are those the general ones are all on YouTube in that way. And to get the full ones, I think you have to connect with them and uh, they send a, a link. The other thing that uh, Blavatsky was... Um, very important for, I think, is that, you know, she traveled a lot in India and really picked up a lot about Indian culture and uh, traveled a lot in the Middle East and really picked up sort of the roots of our Western mysticism. And she sort of married those quite skillfully. So you know, some of some academics of those particular traditions may not like her writing so much because she didn't write in an academic way, but rather in a spiritual way. Uh, but her contribution is really quite amazing. You know, and she really was the one who first widely popularized the idea of reincarnation and the tokus, who is the Dalai Lama and who's the Panchen Lama all this kind of stuff. What's your opinion of the, if you want, content of the Theosophical Society? I mean, historically, I'm mainly thinking historically, but perhaps today, uh, because many of the famous theos Theosophists, and I think the Theosophists perhaps are re really relatively unknown these days, but as you say, hugely influential at the time. But many of the founding members or the, or the luminaries of the Theosophical Society, like Blavatsky and Olcott or Basant and Ledbetter, people like that, they were, as you said, into things such as automatic writing, astral travel, all the cities really, quite into that. Mediumship, channeling of various kinds, channeling the Mahatmas and so on. You know. mm -hmm. um, so quite influential in terms of Western occultism in that era. Uh, what's your opinion, or if you do you have an opinion on the spiritual content, or such as the cities and so on, uh, within the Theosophical Society teachings? Well, with the Theosophical Society itself, I exclusively teach Tibetan Buddhism. So, for instance, when I was there in the spring, just before COVID broke out, I led a, a retreat on the Ten Dharmas of Naropa, which is 
a classical Tibetan lineage. Mm. Many of the retreats I lead there, Milarepa, sort of healing yogas or any kind of tradition that I'm into that I get requested to do. And so uh, when I'm at the Theosophical Society, I don't teach anything from Blavatsky or from Alice Bailey or the such. I basically just present the heart of Tibetan Buddhism, which is my own practice tradition. But of course, I always give uh, credit to Blavatsky at the beginning of my talks and to the early Theosophists for opening the road to the kind of universalism which has flowered and blossomed so well around the world. Now, in terms of channeling and this kind of thing, I mean, it is very popular, you know, it's very big with all of the, with Bailey, and, uh, with um, Blavatsky and with Alice Bailey and, you know, Nicholas Rorick's wife, Helena Rorick, brought it to a kind of a fine art and uh, relied upon it very heavily. And many people have found deep inspiration from it. And, uh, you know, there's probably a couple of hundred centers around the world in which people study those texts and uh, study those writings and make whatever sense they can of them. And certainly it has contributed, I think, to the happiness of and well-being of many peoples, especially peoples of a somewhat multi-dimensional consciousness platform <laughs> who are sometimes in this world and sometimes in another world. It's given them the ability, I think, to navigate those dimensions of consciousness or platforms of being in a kind of meaningful, sensible way and um, go from one to the other and come back to this one and live effective, happy, successful lives without some kind of tradition like that, I think, people get very confused. They think, am I going crazy? I'm hearing voices. Am I schizophrenic? And if you look at any of our great mystics in world history, most people, if you put them in a, into a, in a psychotherapy office today, most of them would be called schizophrenic, <laughs> hearing many voices. Were they, are, were they schizophrenic? I'm not going to make a call on that. But whatever it was that was happening with them, they were able to use that aspect of their life in a successful way for themselves and an inspiring way for others. I mean, Joan of Arc is perhaps a tragic example because she was always hearing voices and was of great inspiration to many people, as were many of the other saints. St. Francis of Assisi is, and, you know, the burning bush is just a, you could say it's just a schizophrenic experience. <laughs> so throughout history of mysticism, not just in um, the three Semitic religions of the Jews, Christians, and Muslims, but in throughout Indian spiritual history, Chinese spiritual history, 
the phenomena of, of mystical people's hearing voices and believing those voices to be some kind of divine guidance, if you will, is pervasive in, in many, many cultures. Just, I think, in the last uh, 50, 75 years, we tend to try to reduce it to a mental disorder. <laughs> but how do we deal with that mental disorder rather than let people use whatever information or whatever multidimensional experience they're having and integrate that into their lives and into our world we generally tend to try to put them on medicines to quieten those voices <laughs> and tell them, you know, this is a mental illness, uh, don't listen and just take these pills or <laughs> whatever. And uh, so is it divine guidance or not? I don't know. Well, uh, you know, when Ezekiel saw the wheel of turn and way in the middle of the sky. <laughs> Was that a schizophrenic experience or was it divine revelation with the burning bush? Was it a schizophrenic experience or a divine revelation? And the same with the channelers, if you will. Now, Mohammed is said to have been a channel and that he channeled, basically, it was Gabriel, I believe, was, was, the, he, was his belief that he would go into trance and whatever came out of his mouth was the divine speech of Gabriel. So we have the whole Quran coming from that sort of source. Now, whether or not you like everything in the Quran is a personal issue, but there is that reality and we have half a billion or so people around the world who are very inspired by that book and many peoples uh, in many cultures found great benefit for them. Of course, we can also look at some bad things that happened, but and we, uh, we can't necessarily always blame that <laughs> on uh, Gabriel, the Archangel Gabriel, or on Mohammed. It could be that it's just uh, thing, things being misused. The same, for instance, the kitchen knife is a very useful tool. And, I'm really miss being in Atlanta because where I was staying in Atlanta, the lady of the house had a whole set of really wonderful German knives and it made cooking and kitchen work just like a samurai experience. And up here, I had to go to the local store and buy a little like potato peeler kind of knife. <laughs> so whether one uses a knife or something beneficial or uses it to kill someone as a murder weapon, isn't so much to do with the knife as it is to do with how humans use it. The same with Christ. If we look at Christ's words, they're generally fairly pacific, fairly peace-driven and peace-orientated and fairly open-minded and love your neighbor as yourself and be good to those who hate you and so on and so forth. But we often see his words being used as kind of onward Christian soldiers <laughs> and um, transferred into a militant way or misused. So I don't know. I haven't really studied Blavatsky's channeling materials in a depth. I mean, I've read, you know, Voice of the Silence, which um, 
many people think is actually a kind of inspired by a particular Tibetan book from a tantric cycle. And in a kind of a loose translation, you could say, a poetic translation. And there's a couple of uh, articles written on that. One of them was written by a friend of mine from Colorado who actually edited, did the editing of my The Practice of Kala Chakra book. And uh, looking at, he knows Tibetan well, he knows Sanskrit well, and he's a super Blavatskyite. <laughs> and so he has written a few articles on the, its source in Tibetan. Whereas other people reading it will think, well, it doesn't look very Tibetan. Unless you think, what are these words being translated as? And so I read that, and I read her Toku in Tibet, and uh, read quite a few of her things. But you know, so the, the big one that she did, uh, The Secret Doctrines, which really is her magnum opus on the mysticism of the Middle East, I, I never made it all the way through that. And similarly with Alice Bailey, I've read, you know, a short book on the seven rays, but I'm no great expert on Bailey's channeling of, what is it they call, BK and Kumi or whatever. I can't remember the names. Blavatsky is Moria and Helena Rorik Moria. I think Tibetans have something of that tradition. Uh, one of the oracles that I went to in Dharmsala. It's unfortunate they didn't record more of his stuff. He died about 20 years ago. When he would go into trance, he would just compose in, you know, seven or nine syllable poetic lines at breakneck speed for like 45 minutes without barely pausing to take a breath. So it's, a, and much of what he said was just amazingly profound. And there was a lady oracle in Dharamsala who did the same thing during her trances and she would spontaneously compose in, in song and just do these pieces in like rap music, rapid fire machine gun kind of pace <laughs> for like half hour, 45 minutes. And so, Tibetans really are very moved by oracular uh, pronouncements, if you will. I think uh, it was problematic for the Theosophical Society from about 1900, sort of the emphasis they put on things like telepathy and uh, out-of-body travel, these kind of things, because the audience for them wasn't really there. Uh, and I think Nicholas Rorick tried to correct that a little bit. And as you know, right now, I'm working on a book, The Buddhist Space of Nicholas Rorick, where he tried to put together something called the Master's Institute, which you would have sort of the best scientists, the best philosophers, the best psychologists, the best doctors, all in the think tank trying to make sense of universal culture. And I think, uh, you know, the telepathy aspect of things and out-of-body travel and astral travel, these kind of things went a little over the top and they 
weren't really integratable into the life of your average European or North American suburban housewife. <laughs> they just kind of made people be a little bit eccentric. And there wasn't really a clear instruction for how to do those things. And so it seemed more like some people have that talent and some don't which I think that's a problem for maintaining a tradition. Like for instance, in Tibet, a lot of the lady oracles, the talent passes um, mother, daughter. Or some of the monk oracles, usually it's one monk in the monastery and when that one dies, within a few years, some other monk in that same monastery will receive the calling. Uh, but I think a problem that Theosophical Society had in, there was no real clear technology for developing that. And therefore, I think it's not terribly useful as a point of emphasis. And I would have to say in the last 30 years, 40 years, during my experience with the Theosophists, that aspect of things is completely de-emphasized much like Christianity 200 years ago was strongly emphasizing the importance of making everyone Christian so they'd all go to heaven. And uh, even if you had to kill them to make them become Christian. <laughs> Whereas now Christianity has taken a much more open-minded approach to things. And so theosophical society, I think in the last 30, 40 years has really changed a lot. And uh, the Theosophical Society in America, which is based in, in Chicago, its last three or four presidents have all been very uh, able peoples. You know, the previous one, Tim Boyd, a very dear friend of mine, uh, African-American, really, really super intelligent, wonderful human being, very practical, business person kind of a personality, but wonderful meditator and wonderful spiritual practitioner. And before him, uh, Betty Bland, who's um, president when I took my Tibet trip with the Theosophists, and uh, so on for the last four or five have been very, you could say, modern, logical, sensible, by ordinary people standards, whereas Telepathy and astral travel are interesting as reading phenomena, and it's okay to drop them in a conversation every now and then. But if one highlights them, it becomes a kind of impractical sky in the pie in the sky kind of affair. A slightly different tangent. I want to do an interview separately about Nicholas Rourke, maybe when the book's coming to be published, because there's actually a lot of interesting things about him. He's a really interesting guy. Yeah, I mean, he was one of those people deeply inspired by uh, theosophy and also very deeply inspired by Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism, and by Indian culture. And especially inspired by Shambhala and the Kala Chakra prophecies. Yep. But, you know, he did run into a lot of problems because being Russian in the 1930s with Stalin coming up and then uh, traveling through China and going to Japan when he went to China, when Japan was becoming a militant force, and then 
living in India when England regarded the Russians as the biggest enemy on the planet and so on. So he became, his, his history kind of undermined or clouded a lot of his genius, I could say. The period in history in which he lived and the political atmosphere of the 1930s sort of obscured his genius uh, in many ways or clouded it over. And uh, yeah, so anyway, yeah, I'm really enjoying working on a book on the Buddhist face of Nicholas Rorick just because he was such a wild, amazing character and completely eccentric and at the same time, really, really brilliant. Mm. Certainly. Yeah, I'd love to do a separate interview on him, actually, when that mm -hmm. book is soon to come out. This is another slightly different angle. I remember on one occasion in Ojai, at, I think, probably it was the Theosophical Society, but in Ojai, you were speaking and you referred to Adida. You mentioned Adida, the controversial American spiritual teacher. Mm. Uh, and you referred to him as a, a Western adept. And, um, and then that's all you said. So I, it, I sort of raised an eyebrow at that. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about that. Did you ever uh, encounter Adida? I don't really recall why you brought him up, but it was just a one line throwaway thing. So I wanted to drill a little bit more into that. You, it was probably one of my mid-afternoon talks when you were getting a little bit sleepy and you drifted into a dream state. <laughs> You know, the, the West has produced a lot of sort of self-made mystics, if you will. You know, in the, the Buddhist world, there is this idea of sort of an Im inborn talent. So just to, for instance, with example, with clairvoyance, there's five ways to have clairvoyance, and the best is meditation and the next best is to accomplish dream yoga because the dream body is somewhat clairvoyant and uh, the best after that is uh, psychedelic, psychotropic drugs, but it's not so good because you're only clairvoyant when you're on those particular kind of drugs. Of course, a lot of our North American native shaman people use those though. The Hopi Indians and the, the Pueblos and the Apaches with mescaline and farther north in Canada, the native medicine men with uh, magic mushrooms and so on. And after that channeling, and channeling is considered less than the other three because it only works when you're channeling. <laughs> when you're not channeled, you, you don't have any clairvoyance. And the fifth is by karma, meaning something from a past life. So I think we do have people popping up here and there uh, where they have some sort of very deep innate spiritual quality that manifests and they may or may not be able to use that successfully in their life because often just understanding it becomes a problem and learning how to use it becomes a problem. So the reason why meditation is the best is because you get it gradually and then when you have it, it's integrated and dream yoga is a little bit the same. You have to be asleep for it to work, but <laughs> you do sleep a few hours every day. So there you go. 
uh, and the problem with the one which they call karmic, in other words, something innate quality from a previous life is you may or may not understand what's going on, or you may or may not be able to use it successfully. Well, you know, we have people like Edgar Casey, for instance, the great prophet who, again, we can look at things that he said and say, that's kind of loony, but a lot of the things he said are very wise. So I think we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater on a lot of this stuff. <laughs> Same as with Mohammed. You know, some of the things he says uh, when giving voice to the words of Gabriel, Archangel Gabriel seem a little on the wild side. <laughs> but uh, in Buddhism, we have this thing we call direct teaching and metaphoric teaching. And the direct is it means what it says and points directly to the reality that is. And the other is a kind of a symbolic statement that has a beneficial effect, but doesn't mean what it says. So I think if we look at many of the, the, the sort of self-arisen, self-made uh, Western mystics, it would be in that fifth category where they are, they have some strong karmic connection from a previous life. Something activates that. And then they are to some degree, if, if, they, if they manage to, to integrate that, they are able to accomplish something in this life and bring benefit to beings in this life through that power. And so, yes, in terms of any specific mystic, you know, I, I couldn't, I don't pass judgment over anyone except myself. And when I judge myself, I'm very gracious and sympathetic. <laughs> I'm very forgiving. <laughs> the benefit of having a strong living tradition. Yeah. As a pose, as opposed to a kind of a karmically induced or mystically induced one, is that the foundation tends to make it a little more stable. Mm. Um, I mean, we say see the same problem with Joan of Arc. She had great visions, but she didn't have great training. And then, towards the end of her career, she wasn't sure if her visions were true or not, and they ended up getting her burned at the stake because she got a few of them wrong. <laughs> and that can always happen, I think, if it's not based on a solid training tradition. And so the Tibetans, I think, generally prefer a kind of a combination of the two. Like, for instance, with Six Yogas of Niguma, which was brought to Tibet by Kumbo Naljar. And he received it from Naropa's sister, Niguma. And when he first arrived in India, and he was right near where Nuguma was living, he had a dream in which he received all 15 initiations in one night. And so then when he met Nuguma a little later, she said, oh yes, yes, you did receive them all in a dream in one night, and you're the only one of my disciples ever to do that. 
but even though you received them in a dream vision, nonetheless, I'm going to give them to you again. <laughs> and you should do a strong retreat and accomplish the practice. So he had both the dream vision and then he had the living tradition. And then doing the practice, incorporating the living tradition with the sort of dream transmission, if you will. And so that's quite strongly there, I think, with all the different Tibetan schools. And sometimes, you know, like for instance, in the Nyingma and Bunpo, their Terma tradition, even though they're tre treasure revolution, revelations, people will still get what they call the, uh, the, the Ringyo, the original transmission, as well as just the, the revelation tradition. And combining those two is often considered to be very important for depth of understanding and stability of practice. But you know, I think one problem we have with certain kinds of spirituality, and it comes in many instances, so if we look through history, is sometimes people, individuals will have difficulty really integrating and transmitting what they experience and how they experience. The training side is uh, questionable, <laughs> is unstable. It's not so clear. So for instance, with myself, I very much like to think of my own teachers, Ling Rinpoche, Trijan Rinpoche, Dalai Lama, and so on and so forth. And I think that kind of keeps me on track in terms of a long-term legacy. Now, I also think I'm quite a smart guy, and if I never met Tibetan Buddhism, I probably would have just started teaching whatever came to mind, <laughs> whatever inspired me. And it's possible that had I done that, it would have allowed a certain amount of narcissism to come into it or pride and so on and so forth. And that I think once pride and narcissism come in, comes into the equation, it's quite easy for things to go in the wrong direction. And they don't have to go very far out for the apple cart to be upset. Yeah, and uh, people become very idealistic about who and what you are. And then if they see something in you which they don't like, it can easily shatter the whole image. And I think, you know, one, back to Nicholas Rorick, one problem he suffered from as an artist was he was also a spiritualist. And the West was quite happy to have the drunken Van Gogh suicidal lunatic and look at his art is quite okay. 
Ergonga, the pedophile who you know raced off to the South, South Sea Islands to have sex with you know girls in their early teens. That was quite okay. Goes along with the artist. But an artist who is also a kind of a spiritualist was a little bit odd. And his art never ran into trouble. His reputation as an artist until his credentials as a spiritualist came into question. You know, then he got banned from Russia, he got banned from America, pretty well banned from Europe and lived his, the rest of his life painting in India, which didn't in any way adversely affect his art. But I think it's the same with uh, spiritual people. If it's part of a longer tradition, I think it's harder to be, it's less likely to go in a narcissistic or egotistical direction from one's uh, lineages and one's experience and one's teaching. There's always the thought of one's own teachers there, which is immediately humbling, you could say. <laughs> uh, not because they necessarily were 10,000 times greater in your mind, but just because the beauty of their humility inspires humility. So, I, yeah, I think a lot of the Western mystics who kind of arose outside of a long lineage of practice had something of a problem with that. And, um, you know, no one in particular comes to mind, but lots of people in general come to mind. <laughs> yeah. We used to, I think, in Europe and certainly in the UK, have quite a hermit tradition and quite a sort of contemplative tradition in certain monastic institutions. Right. Lots of which were dissolved for various political reasons, usually. Mm. And, you know, we, of course, we still have some of those writings from those times, but not really much of a living uh, practice lineage, it seems. Uh, right. When, what about those uh, cave yogis then, in the tradition of Milarepa and so on? One would imagine going out there into the mountains to meditate and engage in some quite esoteric practices, and very often they start seeing things too. Uh, report seeing Dakinis and you know, Nagas and all, all sorts of things. It seems that being alone in a cave for many, many years could have an adverse effect on one's sanity and presumably somewhat out of touch with <laughs> one's teachers and so on. How is that managed? I think it also in, in Europe and in India and Tibet, the, the, the mad Mahasiddha is an archetype for, for a reason, or at least not, not rational by conventional standards. A sort of other sort mm -hmm. of rationality is, is, mm -hmm. is suspected there. Right. How do cave yogis stay mm -hmm. sane, or do they not bother to stay sane? Well, I think very often, Peoples go into long retreats in remote places after they've completed quite a few years of practice. So, you know, they've, they've had plenty of training and a strong basis. But usually it's said when you do your longer retreats, it should be within a day or so walk 
from uh, either your personal guru, your personal lama, or else a senior practitioner in the tradition. So if anything goes wrong and gets very confusing, you can, you know, put on your sandals and don your loincloth and walk down the mountain to wherever that person is and uh, deal with the situation. But I think it was, you know, it was very much the tradition. Well, there's two traditions of it. One is group retreat. So for instance, Kargyu Nyingma, the early retreatants often do the three-year, Losam Chusam, three years, three dharmas retreat. They often do in groups of anywhere from 10 to 20 or 25 with a trupan, a retreat master, someone who's done a few of those before and kind of leads it. So they have that there and occasionally some of them do go a little bananas. But then if you take any 25 people and put them in a cabin together for three years, you'll have one or two people going bananas. But the, the, the the rate of people's going a little bit crazy is, is not that big. And if they go totally in the wrong direction, then usually they'll be released from the retreat and go back to whatever the temple or monastery or their family and just sort of chill out for a little bit. And then, uh, for instance, my Nyingma guru, I think his first two three-year retreats he did in groups like that. His third one he did by himself uh, in the Mount Everest region, north of the Mount Everest region. And because uh, it was his third, then by that time he was used to what to, how to handle sort of symptomatic side effects. You know, when we learn meditation, there's always that instruction that if great visions and whatnot arise, see them as side effects of the practice and don't be distracted and keep to the main practice. And that is uh, an important pointer. <laughs> but if people forget to do that and they get carried away by the visions and the experiences, it can be a problem. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, above Darmsala, when I lived there, for instance, there were always between 20 and 30 people up a couple of miles above Darmsala, anywhere from a day or two walk, doing three or four year retreats, and some of them uh, longer six year retreats. Now, most of them, the Dalai Lama would ask them to come down once a month to the temple and uh, on the way down to stop in at Ling Rinpoche's and have Ling Rinpoche give them an eyeball to eyeball. <laughs> and of course, once a month, he would send up a little caravan with uh, donkeys carrying a month's supply of food for them and just drop off some barley and some dried fruit and butter and tea and stuff like that. But staying in touch like that was considered quite important. In Milarepa's cave case, 
uh, he was con not a totally ordinary person, but he was with Marpa for many years before he started doing his long retreats. And then Marpa gave him a book to take with him. And he said, whenever things go crazy, just read this book a few times. Just chant this book a few times. A little bit like your story of Robert Bear and going a little bit wild from some of his early or uh, early experiences, maybe late teen experience, early 20s experiences, where he basically by painting was able to ground himself and bring himself back to a kind of a more orderly sense of being. <laughs> so Milarepa was given a book and Marpa said, whenever you have a problem, just open this and it'll solve your problem. So that was his kind of touchstone, if you will, his wish fulfilling jewel. Sankapa did a number of three-year retreats. He did one five-year retreat and had many, many visions. And if they started going a bit wild, he would just sort of knock out 100,000 prostrations. <laughs> so I think the main point though, really does come down to that key instruction that when really wild feelings of bliss or great uh, visionary experiences and so forth arise, just see them as side effects of the practice. Don't be distracted and go back to the central focus. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.